And we need to continue our study of this principle that God's Israel today is spiritual Israel. The nation of Israel is no longer God's vehicle to take the gospel to the world. It is God's worldwide church that has that mission. Now we're going to take a look at the material that is titled Israel and the Fig Tree. We're not going to look at all of this material. Uh, we are going to skip certain sections because in our next study we are going to cover those sections that are in this uh, document, Israel and the Fig Tree. So let's begin at the top of the page where it says Introduction. We're going to read from Matthew 24 and verses 32 to 35. Matthew 24, of course, has the signs of the second coming. And this is how it reads. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Now we want to focus on what this text says about the fig tree. It says, now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, so you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Now dispensationalists say that the fig tree here is a symbol of Israel, and that the budding of the fig tree is a prophecy concerning the reestablishment of the Jewish nation in the year 1948. They teach that this is the greatest sign that the coming of Jesus is imminent or even at the door. So we need to carefully examine whether this is true. We need to examine this passage to see if the budding of the fig tree is the reestablishment of Israel in the Holy Land as a nation. Now first of all, we must say that it is true that the fig tree and the vine are associated with literal Israel in the Old Testament. Notice Hosea chapter 9 and verse 10. The fig tree and the vine are associated with literal Israel. It says there in Hosea 9 verse 10, I found Israel like what? See there you have the vineyard idea, like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first fruits on the fig tree in its first season, but they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves to that shame they became an abomination like the thing they loved. And so it's true that the vineyard and the fig tree in the Old Testament symbolized literal Israel. There's no doubt about it. But the question is, does Matthew 24, uh, when it refers to the fig tree, refer to the Jewish nation, or does it have another meaning? Well, we want to take a look at this idea of the tree in three different moments of time uh, leading up to the ministry of Christ. Go in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 3 and verses 8 through 10. Here John the Baptist is going to begin his preaching, and he begins his preaching six months before Jesus begins his public ministry. That's an important chronological detail. John the Baptist is beginning his preaching 
six months or half a year before Jesus began His public ministry. And of course John's mission was to prepare the way for the first coming of Jesus. Now let's notice what John said in his message to the Jewish nation. It says there, therefore, he's calling upon the nation, therefore bear what? Fruits, that's important, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, saying, don't you just think that it's a great thing to be a literal descendant of Abraham. For I say to you, that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And by the way, Desire Ages says that Jesus was not pointing at literal stones, He was pointing at some Gentiles. That were, I mean, John wasn't pointing at some stones, He was pointing at Gentiles that were present there at His baptism. Because the Jews felt that the Gentiles had stony hearts. And so they called them stones, they called them swine, and they called them dogs. Not very complimentary. But anyway, uh, John says, God is able to raise up children of Abraham uh, from these stones. And then notice verse 10, And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree, notice he's, he's using the analogy of the tree, right? With, for the nation of Israel. And he's saying that they need to repent. So therefore every tree which does not bear what? Good fruit, in other words a fruitless tree is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now remember all of these elements. First of all, he calls them to repentance. Secondly, he says, don't you think that it's a great thing simply to be a literal descendant of Abraham? And then he says that you're like a tree, and if the nation of Israel does not produce fruit, it will be cut down. Those are the key details. Now let's go to our next passage, Luke 13 and verses 1 through 9. Luke 13 and verses 1 through 9. And a chronological detail is very important here. Jesus is telling this parable, according to those who have studied the chronology of the Gospels, two and a half years into Christ's ministry. So how long has this tree existed at that point? Three years. Six months or half a year, John the Baptist preaching, he calls Israel a tree. And then Jesus gives this parable two and a half years into Christ's ministry, so six months plus two and a half years is what? Three years. That's an important chronological detail we're going to notice. And we're going to see many similarities in this parable to what John the Baptist preached. Notice Luke 13 and verse 1. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans? Because they suffered these things? I tell you, no. But unless you what? There's one of the key words. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse 4, Or those 18, on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you what? Unless you repent, there's the key word again that John the Baptist used, you will all likewise perish. And now he's going to tell a parable. Verse 6, he also spoke this parable. A certain man, this is God the Father, had a fig tree. What would the fig tree represent? Israel, that's right and planted 
in his vineyard. He had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. What does the vineyard represent? It represents the world. And he came seeking fruit. What fruit was he seeking? The fruit of the Holy Spirit. And what happened? And on it he found none. What kind of tree was it? It was a fruitless tree. So three years after John the Baptist began his preaching, had the Jewish tree produced fruit? No. Now notice what it continues saying. Let's go to verse 7. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, who is the keeper? Jesus Christ. Look, for three years, there's the chronological detail, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree. Did John the Baptist speak about a free tree? Absolutely. And find what? None. So the owner of the tree says, cut it down. Did John say something about cutting down the tree? Absolutely, cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But uh, the vine dresser loved the tree. Notice what he says. But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year. How long did the ministry of Jesus last? Three and a half years. How long still remained in his ministry when he told this parable? One year. Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. So is he going to dedicate special attention to it? Absolutely. And if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that, you can cut it down. Did Jesus dedicate special attention to the Jewish nation the last year of his ministry? He most certainly did. He did everything that he could for this fig tree. Now the parable ends and we don't know what happened to the fig tree. Did it produce fruit or did it not produce fruit? We don't know until the year is almost over. Go with me to Matthew chapter 21 and verses 17 through 19. Matthew 21, 17 through 19. You remember Jesus saw a fig tree in the distance, right? And he was hungry. So he says to his disciples, hey, let's go over to that fig tree and see if there's any figs. I'm hungry. And we need to understand that in Israel, the fig tree, first of all, bears the fruit, and then the leaves come out, indicating that the tree has fruit. So the fruit comes out, and then the leaves. So if this fig tree had leaves, Jesus says, it's got to have fruit. And so Jesus comes seeking fruit on the tree because he's hungry. And I want you to notice what happens. Verse 17, Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. Does Jesus hunger for fruit? Does he hunger for the fruit of the Spirit? Yes, he does. And seeing a fig tree, ah, this is the fig tree that John spoke about. This is the same fig tree that we find in the parable in Luke 13. You have to connect these three fig tree stories. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves. And said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. Now what part of ever again do you, don't you understand? And immediately the fig tree 
withered away. What does the fig tree represent? Israel. Mark 11 adds some interesting details. Mark 11 verses 12 through 14. Now the next day when they had come out from Bethany he was hungry and seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, so you would expect fruit. Ellen White said that it had just pretentious foliage. <laughs> he went to see if perhaps he could find something on it. And when he came to it he found nothing but leaves. And then it says, for it was not the season for figs. And Ellen White explains something very interesting. She says that this one tree in an orchard had borne leaves before all of the other ones. The other ones were bare. You see, the other ones represented the Gentiles. It was not expected that they bear fruit because they had no leaves. They had not received the benefits and the blessings that, the, that this one fig tree had received. And so it says it was not the season for figs. If it wasn't the season for figs, Jesus wouldn't have gone to the tree if he thought that it didn't have figs, but it had leaves. It received special privileges and special blessings. Verse 14, in response Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. Now Mark 11, 20 and 21 tells us that the next morning something very interesting happened. It says, now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. What happens when a tree dries up from the roots? That is it. It is finished. And Peter remembering said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has been what? Has been withered away. Does that sound like quite a bit of finality when it comes to the destiny of the Jewish nation? Absolutely. The fig tree dried up from the roots and it is a symbol of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is not God's instrument to bring the gospel to the world anymore. There might be individual Jews that God will use who have accepted Jesus Christ. But is the church of Christ that has accepted Jesus Christ all over the world to whom the mission has been committed to spiritual Israel who have linked with Jesus Christ. Now let's jump down on the next page to where it says Matthew 24 and the fig tree. Matthew 24 and the fig tree. Remember we read about the fig tree in Matthew 24 when it starts budding? Uh, you know, when you see this, you know that uh, Jesus is even at the doors. Well, let's take a closer look at this. Let's notice Matthew 24, verses 32 and 33 again. As you see the fig tree bud, it is a sign that the summer is near. In the same way, he's using an analogy, when you see, now listen carefully, all these things know that it is near even at the doors. Is it just the budding of the fig tree that is the sign? No. What does Jesus say? When you see all of these things, it's when you see all of the signs of Matthew 24, not only the budding of the fig tree. What's even more telling is what we find in Luke 21 verses 29 to 31. Luke 21 and verses 29 to 31. 
Here Jesus is speaking about the signs of His coming also, and notice that He adds a very significant detail. He says there, Then He spoke to them a parable, Look at the fig tree and all the trees. Is there anything special about the fig tree as far as signs are concerned? No, no, no. It's not only the fig tree. It says, Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, when they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is now near. So also when you see these things, plural, happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Is the budding of the fig tree of particular significance? No. Jesus is using an analogy. He says, when you see the fig tree budding, you know summer is near. And so when you see all of these signs of Matthew 24, you'll know that the end is near. But Jesus is not saying that the fig tree here is a symbol of Israel being reborn as a nation in 1948. Because the fig tree withered from its roots. Now let's go to our next section, Nathaniel, the Nathaniel experience. Let's read from John 1 verses 43 to 48. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Now listen carefully. Behold, an Israelite indeed. Now if there are Israelites indeed, must there be Israelites not indeed? Of course. An Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Now what made Nathanael an Israelite indeed? Verse 48 has the key. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, and here it's very interesting, it says, When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So there you have the symbol and what is symbolized. You have the fig tree and Nathanael, who is an Israelite indeed. Are you with me? Now what is it that made Nathanael an Israelite indeed? He said to Jesus, You are what? You are the Messiah. You are the King of Israel. He recognized Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And that's what indicated that Nathanael was an Israelite indeed, a true Israelite, because he confessed Jesus as the King of Israel and as the Anointed One, or as the Messiah. If there are Israelites indeed, then there must be Israelites not indeed. The Greek word for indeed really means something true or real, something genuine. This is why the NIV translates the expression, a true Israelite. This translation is corroborated by the fact that the verse ends by saying, that there was in Nathanael no pseudos. Why was Nathanael singled out as an Israelite indeed? Verse 49 provides the answer. What made Nathanael an Israelite indeed was that he confessed 
that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, the King of Israel. What then is a true Israelite? One who acknowledges Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Notice that Nathanael was an Israelite indeed, and he was under a fig tree, which was recognized, a recognized symbol of Israel. Thus in this passage we have the symbol and what the symbol represents. The Israelite indeed is sitting under a tree which represents Israel. Are you understanding the point? Now let's go to one final passage before we go to our next material. And that is John 8 and true Israel. Even during his ministry Jesus made a distinct distinction between Israel and then true Israel. Jesus was speaking to a group of Jews, and I want you to notice carefully the conversation that goes on. It begins in verse 37, because the people are saying, We are children of Abraham. Now let's pick up the conversation. Verse 37, Jesus says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. By the way, the word descendants is the word seed. In the King James it says seed. I know that you are Abraham's seed. Were those who were present there Abraham's seed physically? Sure they were. But you seek to kill me, because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. Soon he's going to reach the climax, and he's going to tell them whose father, who their father is. It's not Abraham. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if, is there a condition here? Conditional? Yes. If you were Abraham's children, were they Abraham's children? Now wait a minute, we have a problem here. Were they Jews? So were they Abraham's children? Does Jesus say they're Abraham's children? No. He's going to say you're not Abraham's children. So is it possible to be a literal descendant of Abraham and not be an Israelite? Absolutely. This is Jesus. Notice what he continues saying. If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But, this is the combination if, but, right? But, now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, Abraham did not do this. You know, it's what you want to do to me, Abraham would have never done. So how can you say that you're Abraham's children? Then the conversation continues. Once again, verse 41. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if, notice once again, if, they weren't. But he says, if, God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father the devil. Were they children of Abraham? Why were they children of the devil? Because they did not accept Jesus. So he says, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. 
when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So let me ask you, is there such a thing as a, as a literal Jew who is not a Jew? According to the definition of Jesus. Is there a true Israel and a counterfeit Israel? Yes, and how is it defined? It is not defined by geography. It is not defined by genetics. It is not defined by the last name that you have. It is defined by your relationship to Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. If you are Christ's, you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So let me ask you, are there prophecies that are going to be fulfilled with literal Israel in the Middle East? No. With which Israel is prophecy going to be fulfilled? It is going to be fulfilled with God's spiritual worldwide Israel. Is that clear? Now let's go to our next material. And we're going to have to, we're not going to be able to finish this in this time period, so we're going to have to pick, pick up a little bit more in our next session together. But let's get as far as we can. A monumental conversion experience. And we're going to work through this the way that we work through all of the other material. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, we find that after the day of Pentecost, thousands were leaving Judaism and they were accepting Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Not only from among the laity, but also priests of Israel were accepting Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. It says there in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now Stephen was one of the instruments that God used in this phenomenal church growth. We're told in Acts chapter 6 and verse 8, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Now in Judaism at this time was a very prominent prospect. His name was Saul of Tarsus. He was no featherweight. He was an intellectual giant and a promising prospect with a brilliant future. He was young, energetic, and relentless. He had tunnel vision. In his mind, God had chosen the Jewish nation irrevocably and unconditionally, and woe to those who thought otherwise. For Saul, the preservation of the religion of Judaism was the top priority. His entire religion was Jewish-centered. In his own words, he said, and this is found in Acts 22, verse 3, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all, as you all are today. So he was Israel-centered at this point in his life. You see, Saul of Tarsus felt the same way as Caiaphas has, had felt when Jesus appeared before the trans, uh, Sanhedrin for his religious trial. Let's remember that experience. It's found in John 11 and verses 47 
through 50. This is the fear that embraced Saul of Tarsus, and this is what led him to persecute Christians mercilessly. He was afraid that if Christianity proliferated, the Jewish nation would disappear. The Romans would take away the Jewish nation. And for him, the Jewish nation was the important thing in all of its religion. In John 11, verses 47 through 50, we find, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, speaking about Jesus, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Are you understanding the fear that they had? They had the fear that the religion of Jesus would embrace the whole world. And then the Jewish religion would be irrelevant. And the Romans would get rid of it. Verse 49. And one of them, Caiaphas, being a high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation perish. That was the fear of Saul of Tarsus, that the Jewish nation would disappear. He wanted to preserve his religion, Jewish-centered religion. And therefore he became a persecutor of those who followed Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 26 and verses 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul reminisces about his past experience, and he says, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue, and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So was Saul of Tarsus, the one who was centered on the Jewish nation and preserving the faith of the Jewish nation without Christ. Now we're told in the story in Acts that Saul of Tarsus was present at the stoning of Stephen, this champion that had preached the gospel, and as a result many Jews had left Judaism, and many priests had left Judaism, and they had embraced Christianity, and so Stephen was public enemy number one in the mind of Saul. We're told in Acts 7 verses 57 and 58, speaking about the stoning of Stephen, then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. In fact, Saul was the ringleader in this uh, lynching. Notice Acts 22 and verse 20. Acts 22 and verse 20. Speaking about the death of Stephen, it says, And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. He was egging everybody on to destroy Stephen, who was gaining many converts from Judaism because he saw that Christianity was growing by leaps and bounds. He said, Judaism will disappear, the religion of the fathers. So Saul decided that he would 
that we, he would travel to Damascus because he had heard that there were Christians in Damascus. And so he received permission from the high priests and he began his expedition to Damascus. I've been there. It's an interesting place. I wouldn't be able to go there today because of what's happening uh, in Syria. But uh, in May of 2001, uh, shortly before the 9-11 thing, uh, I was able to go over there with Sarkis Kanablian, who is one of the members of our church. And um, it was a very interesting place, Damascus, the oldest city on earth, they say. And we actually visited the place where uh, supposedly Saul went to the house of Ananias after he was blinded on the road to Damascus. I want you to notice how the story continues to develop in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so Saul of Tarsus began his journey towards Damascus. And he would have arrived from Dam to Damascus from the southwest. Now, on the road to Damascus, he had a life-changing experience that was to change not only his life, but his theology forever. He had an encounter, a personal encounter with his enemy, Jesus Christ. Saul discovered that by persecuting the body of Christ, he was actually persecuting Christ because Christ is the head and the church is his body. He had been kicking against the pricks and his conscience from the time that Stephen had been stoned had bothered him. He knew deep in his heart that Stephen was in the right and that he was in the wrong. And so we find these words in Acts 9, 3 through 6. It says, As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? On the road to Damascus, he encountered Jesus Christ. And his encounter with Jesus Christ transformed his life and transformed his theology from Jewish-centered to Christ-centered. In Acts 22, verses 16 through 18, we're found, we find that he was directed to go to the house of Ananias. And there at the house of Ananias, Saul of Tarsus was baptized into Christ. Let's read it in Acts 22, verses 16 through 18. But the Lord said to him, that is to Ananias, Go to the house of Judas, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name from the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. You know, those scales that fell off of his eyes were more than physical scales. He could now see clearly what his religion was all about. Now I want you to notice Galatians chapter 3 and verses 26 and 27. Galatians 3 verses 26 and 27. Those who are baptized put on Christ. In other words, Saul of Tarsus, when he was baptized, he became a Christian. He became a believer in the Messiah, and he received the Spirit to proclaim the Messiah. It says there in Galatians 3 verse 26, All those who have been baptized into Christ have what? Have put on Christ. So at his baptism, Saul of Tarsus puts on Jesus Christ. He is now a Christian. He is now a true seed of Abraham. He is a true descendant of Abraham before he was not. Because when he was persecuting the Christians, he was doing the work of the devil. But when he embraces Jesus Christ, he's doing the work of the Lord. Are you following me? He was before a Jew, but he was not a true Jew. When he receives Jesus, he is now a true Jew because those who have accepted Jesus are the true seed of Abraham. Notice Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29. Galatians 3 verse 29 says, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Who is a descendant of Abraham? A descendant of Abraham is one who has accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah. It doesn't matter if you're Chinese, it doesn't matter if you're Filipino, it doesn't matter if you're Colombian or Argentinian or Puerto Rican. It doesn't matter what nation you're from. When you receive Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord, you are Israel. You are the seed of Abraham because those who have joined Christ are the seed of Abraham. They are true Israel. So with whom is prophecy going to be fulfilled? These prophecies that speak about Israel, with whom are they going to be fulfilled? With the literal Jews in the Middle East? No, they're not the true Jews, according to the biblical definition. And so now, the emphasis of Saul of Tarsus totally shifts and changes. It is not now Israel-centered, it is Christ-centered. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 22, this is what it says, But Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. And that word Christ is the word Messiah, the anointed one, Christ. We get the word Christen from, which means to anoint, right? And so, and so Saul says, and he actually debates with the Jews in Damascus, and he says, Jesus is the Christ. Saul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus had a deep impact upon him. You know, it's interesting that the story of his conversion is told three times in the book of Acts. Once it's told by the one who wrote the book, that is, that is Luke. And then Paul himself tells that story in chapter 22 and in chapter 26. I think that that is considered extremely important in understanding Saul of Tarsus. 
Notice how his theology shift, shifted. Philippians 3 and verses 3 through 11. Philippians chapter 3 and verses 3 through 11. We've read this before, but now we read it in the context of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Here the Apostle Paul says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Wow, isn't that amazing? He says, we worship God in the Spirit. That's it's a real circumcision. Is this spiritual circumcision? Yes, it is. We worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. But then he reminisces about his past. He says, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, Concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. That's the old Paul. But now notice what he says. But what things were gained to me, I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom, whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, and can be found in Him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And now the persecutor becomes the persecuted. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 22 to 28. Everything that Saul of Tarsus went through, he did lose all, but he gained all. Because when you lose everything you have, and you have everything that Jesus has, you have much more than you had before. Notice 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 22. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? Then he says, I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews five times I have received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned three times. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among the false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. You say, wow, he gave up a lot. 
He gave up nothing. And you know one of the most exciting things that is ever going to happen is when Saul of Tarsus and Stephen meet. Whew, I got to see that. <laughs> because Stephen does not know, did not know that Saul was converted. And so you can imagine, let me allow me to dramatize just uh, briefly here. Uh, give, give me the joy of, of recreating what might happen when we get to heaven. Here you have Saul of Tarsus walking down the street of gold, and from the opposite direction comes Stephen walking. And the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, looks, and he sees Stephen, and Stephen, he looks, and he sees Saul, and he says, you look familiar. Are you Saul of Tarsus? Why, you nasty character. <laughs> That's not what he's going to say. What he's going to say, Saul, you accepted Jesus as your Savior. You were saved too. You're kidding me. And there's going to be this great embrace between the martyr and the martyrizer. That is going to be tremendous when, when Saul of Tarsus meets Stephen. And by the way, there will be no hard feelings. <laughs> Stephen will be just happy to see that Saul of Tarsus is saved in the kingdom. Saul discovered a revolutionary truth. And that is that God has only one true people. Those who have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. God does not have two mutually separable peoples, the literal Jews and the Christian church. There is only one people of God, and they are not defined by their ethnicity, by their nationality, by their social status, by their gender, by their color. They are defined as the people of God by their relationship to Jesus Christ. Now, let's take a look at the fact that in the New Testament, God's people are only one. Because dispensationalism says that God has two peoples. One people is the literal Jews. And God's plan for them is after the rapture. Another plan of God is for the Gentiles or for the church, and they're going to be raptured to heaven. So God has two peoples, and He has two different plans for those peoples. But my Bible tells me that God has one people, and one plan for that people. Now let's notice how this develops. God has only one fold, and that fold has only one shepherd. Notice John chapter 10 and verse 16. We're going to notice several passages in Scripture that speak about the word one now. One fold, one shepherd. John 10 and verse 16. And Jesus says, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Who are those other sheep that were not of that fold? Jesus was sent first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So who would the other sheep be? It would be the Gentiles. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be two flocks and one shepherd. Thank you very much. You're still awake after such a long day. There will be one flock and one shepherd. Will Gentiles and Jews both be one flock? Absolutely. John 11, 51 and 52. 
Here we have a commentary on what Caiaphas said. Now this he did not say on his own authority. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation all only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So are there two flocks? There is only one flock composed of Jews and Gentiles, and there is one shepherd, Jesus Christ. There is only one Israel, folks, one true Israel. Notice Romans chapter 2 and verses 28 and 29. The New Testament is so clear on this. It's difficult to understand how people don't catch this point. See, what they do is literalize, and they lose the deep spiritual significance of Bible prophecy because they're expecting everything to be fulfilled literally. In the Middle East, a literal Antichrist, in a literal temple, a literal image, a literal three and a half years. And they lose that, that the Antichrist is in the temple now. He's sitting in there. And his helper is growing right here in this country. The beast that rises from the earth that has two horns like a lamb. People can't see it because they're looking in the wrong place. They think that God is fulfilling prophecy with literal Israel when the New Testament clearly says that Israel is spiritual and it's worldwide. Romans 2, 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. What is an outward Jew? Uh, ethnic, right? Circumcised with the last name Goldberg. Yeah. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. Converted heart, folks. In the spirit, not in the letter, which the Jews emphasized, whose praise is not from men, because the Jewish nation loved to be praised by men, but from who? But from God. So are there true Jews and counterfeit Jews? Yes. There are outward Jews and there are inward Jews. So with whom is prophecy going to be fulfilled? With the outward Jews, right? No. No. With the in, why would the devil want to persecute outward Jews? He wants to persecute those who have a true relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes. Notice Romans 9, verses 6 through 8. Romans 9, verses 6 through 8. Here the Apostle Paul says, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Isn't that interesting? Not all Israel is Israel. Now that sounds like a weird statement. What does he mean? Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. Are there children of Abraham that are not really children of Abraham? Yes. Now notice. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. Now comes the explanation. That is, those who are the children of the flesh. Who are those? The children of the flesh literal Jews, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. That is the promise of the Messiah. 
the children of the Messiah. Thus Israel is not defined geographically, ethnically, or genetically, but relationally. Jesus is the only faithful Israelite, and when we receive Him as our Savior, we too become Israelites. Notice this interesting passage in Galatians 3 verse 16, in verses 26 to 29. Uh, this is kind of a strange, uh, apparent contradiction. There's not a contradiction, but it appears kind of strange. You'll see in a minute why. Verse 16 says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, And to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So to whom were the promises made? They were made to Christ. So how many seeds are there? How many seeds of Abraham? One. Now I say, no, wait a minute. So the only seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ? That's what Paul is saying. He said, the promises were not made to seeds. The promise was made to the seed. Now are we going to benefit from those promises? How? Well, because we live in the Middle East. Because we have literal Jewish blood flowing through our veins. No. Let's go to verse 26. It says in verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. How do we become true sons of God, true Israel? By faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. And some people use that to say that we can ordain women to the gospel ministry. It's not talking about church offices at all. That is, a, that is, twisting, that is twisting the scriptures beyond... I don't have words to describe it, let me put it that way. <laughs> it's frustrating when I sit and I listen to people try to twist this text and say that it's saying that women can be pastors and they can be elders of the church. This is speaking about salvation and your status in Christ. Pure and simple. Forgive me for being so zealous about this, but I belong to the Theology of Ordination Committee and uh, we have to sit and we have to listen to a lot of foolishness. <laughs> So now notice what it says. Verse 20, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one. How many? How many, Israel, how, how many true Israel does God have? One. You are one Israel in Christ Jesus. And, that's, and then it says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Do you know why we are the seed of Abraham? Because we're linked with Jesus. In other words, if you want to be a son or daughter of God, you have to become a brother or sister of Jesus. Let me amplify that point in the couple of minutes that we have left in this segment. You know, Jesus is the only individual who really has the right to be called the son of God. In a very special sense, he's the son of God. How do we become sons of God? Well, the fact is that to become sons of God, we have to become brothers and sisters of Jesus first. So when I'm baptized, I become a brother of Jesus. And then Jesus comes before the Father and He says, Father, I've got a new brother. And the Father says, really? You got a new brother? Yes. Who is he? Pastor Stephen Vore. And the father says, really? 
Stephen Boris, your brother? Well, if he's your brother, he's my son too. That's what Jesus meant when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That's why Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren. So when we join Jesus, we become his brothers and sisters. And because we're brothers and sisters, we inherit with him all of the promises. But the promises are not inherited out of Christ. They are inherited in Christ. None of the promises will be fulfilled to literal Israel if they don't link with Jesus because the promises were made to Jesus. And when you receive Jesus, the promises are yours as well. It is so clear. It's kind of like a tomato plant. You take a little tomato seed, you plant it, and you have a tomato plant. How many tomatoes on that tomato plant? At least dozens. Do those tomatoes have seeds too? Thousands of seeds. And so you plant all those seeds. And then you have thousands of plants. Let me ask you, where do all those seeds come from? From the one seed. So when you link yourself with Jesus, the seed, then you become the seed. And then you share the message and others become the seed. Are you following me? In other words, the key is linking with Jesus, not any other consideration. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.